Welcome to Rex's Bible Minute. This is a weekly video where we talk about Jesus, Christianity, and anything along those lines. Um, and we might need to rename it because the, the, the tagline doesn't really fit as well as it used to. Uh, we are not doing so much uh, single topic stuff. We are doing Bible studies with this. This is really uh, the Wednesday night Bible study at our church. Uh, this is what we're studying. So if you haven't made it out to a Wednesday night Bible study and you've been watching these videos, let me recommend it. Like if you're in our area, Please come on out. It's it's a lot more interactive than just watching a video. So uh, that being said, we are studying the Thessalonian letters still. Um, these two letters that were written incredibly close together, very much dependent on each other, uh, written in a very specific context. So anytime you read anything, you need to make sure you understand the context. Like even if it's a modern day text, I say this a lot, but for some reason people don't listen. You need to understand what you're reading, who wrote it, who they're writing to, and why they wrote it, and any cultural, contextual things that go along with it. Make sure you do the legwork to study this stuff. It's so important. It's the Word of God. It's the, the things, the, the letters that God has given to us to understand Him, to understand the things of God given to us through His apostles like the, through his his messengers like this is this is a massively important writings for us as Christians to understand how to live our lives how to live life the way that God would want us to live and if we don't do the legwork we just treat it as bumper sticker um source material then you know we're not doing it justice and we're going to misunderstand it and we're going to struggle with our understanding of God so do the legwork go watch the other videos read it for yourself make sure you're studying along with us that being said, we're going to be in chapter 2 today of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to do 13 through 20. Um, and this is, again, it's picking up where Paul left off last week. And as always, these letters, these verses that we read, they're part of a larger thought structure, right? If you sit down and you write a letter or you write a book, you're, you're, each section is a piece of the bigger puzzle. It fits within the, the larger picture, and so as we read this, try to, try to keep that in mind, that this is part of a relatively short letter and that it's important that we fit it into the larger picture, okay? So chapter 2, starting in verse 13, I'm going to be reading from the Kingdom New Testament translation um, just because I like it and I want to switch it up and it emphasizes some of the things I think Paul was trying to emphasize this week. So it says this, so therefore, we thank God constantly that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of a mere human being, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For my dear family, you came to copy God's assemblies in Judea and the Messiah Jesus. You suffered the same things from your own people they did from those of the Judeans who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and who expelled us. They displease God. They oppose all people. They forbid us to speak to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. This has had the effect all along of completing the full total of their sins, but the fury has come upon them for good. As for us, my dear family, we were snatched away from you for a short time, in person though not in heart. We longed eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. That's why we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but the Satan got in our way. Don't you see, when our Lord Jesus is present once more, what is our hope, our joy, the crown of our boasting before him? It's you. Yes, you are our glory and our joy. So we're going to go the first section there, verses 10, uh, 13, I'm sorry, through 16. 
Now, NZ right in his commentary on this, he talks about how he went backpacking with his son and they, they were walking up this mountain and the weather forecast looked good. And they walked up the mountain, everything was sunny and beautiful. And they got to the top of the mountain, they looked over and they saw just super nasty clouds, like the super dark, scary thunderstorm clouds. NZ Wright says that, that this is, verse 13 is like when they reach the summit of that. Like up to this point, Paul's been very positive. You guys have done so well, he says. You know, you've, you've faced this persecution, you've done so well. And then verse 13, it's like, boom, storm clouds. We're seeing some really heavy stuff happen all of a sudden. We're seeing some things that are definitely not all sunny and cheerful. Like this is, it's not that, that Paul is being negative, but it's like the situation that he's speaking to is very dark. It's very, very dark. And so he says that, that you guys have been in a storm. You know, Paul says that you guys have been struggling in the face of persecution. Now, storms happen in our lives, and it's not always clear why. We have a God who is in control, and so at best we can just accept that God allowed it in our lives, but that doesn't... I can sometimes portray God as this cr- harsh, cruel God because some storms are brutal. But the reality of it is God works through the storms in our lives. And so in this storm that the, these Thessalonians are facing, they're facing the storm of persecution. I want you to picture the position they find themselves in. They're, they're Jews and they're Greeks and they're Romans and they're living their lives and they're living life as best as they can. You know, they're, they're facing the same struggles we face today just in their context. You know, having families, raising kids, working, making ends meet, paying the bills, you know, getting along with your spouse, all those kind of things that you and I face nowadays. Like, they were facing them. And, you know, their life had a rhythm just like your life has a rhythm. And then this crazy guy marches into town and he has scars all over him because he's been beaten and he's been, had rocks thrown at him until they thought he was dead and he's, he's been just in prisons and this crazy guy. And he comes in, he sets up a tent making shop and goes to work and he works hard and he does good work and so he earns respect of business people but then he starts talking religion. Now, if in our context, if somebody starts talking religion to you kind of out of nowhere, you probably ain't going to listen to them, are you? You know what I mean? Like it's, it's like talking politics or religion at family gets-togethers. If somebody does, it causes fights because every family has people on both ends of every spectrum. But Paul comes into town, and he has this rough, traveling, migrant, vagrant look to him. But he works hard and he puts together a business very quickly and he starts preaching politics. Now you might be like, hold up, he's not preaching politics. To preach Jesus as king, that's preaching politics. Now we'll get into that in the second half of today's study. But he preaches politics and he preaches this new religion. And this new religion says that there's this guy who was actually God. He came, he lived a perfect life. And then he died. And to both the Jews and the Greeks and to the Romans as well, I'm kind of lumping the Greeks and Romans into one group and Jews the other. That makes no sense. But Paul preaches the truth. 
He does. He says he doesn't use fancy oratory. He's not the best speaker in the world. There's actually a story in the book of Acts where Paul spoke so long and got so boring that somebody fell out a window because they fell asleep and died. Like they got resurrected. You know, spoiler to that story. But like you know, he he bored people to death literally. So Paul is not not this magical orator. Like he's not somebody who could just win you over with with the sheer force of the things he says. He comes into town, he has all the cards stacked against him, he has all the perceptions stacked against him. I mean, last week we talked about how like all these various preachers from other religions and philosophies that come into town, Paul looked like them, and they all had terrible reputations. That's all last week's study was, was Paul uh, rebuking all those accusations that were being thrown at him just because he was a traveling preacher. And he looks at them and he says, listen, I preach to you and here's how we know that God's word is God's word. That's not just me talking. It's not just my fancy talking good. But it's the word of God, God's message to you. Here's how we know it's really that. It produced the same results in you as it did the churches in Jerusalem and Judea. Think about that. You know, you have the original churches, you know, the ones that the, the apostles we read about in the Gospels, those ones that they started in cities like Antioch and Jerusalem and all those surrounding cities. Those churches faced persecution because they followed Jesus. And they faced it primarily from, from Jewish people, you know, from their neighbors, their friends, their family, who said there's no way that the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who is going to give Israel its freedom and make them rulers of the whole world, there's no way that guy allowed himself to be crucified, to be murdered by the government. No way. His job is to overthrow the government. He's not going to let the government kill him. And so they persecuted those churches. They persecuted them and said, you, know, you guys aren't, you no, know, you're done. We're going to get rid of you. And all it did was make them spread out and expand it further. And so that's, he says like the, that ability to stand strong in the face of that persecution, the face of being hated by their friends, their families, their neighbors, losing their jobs, losing everything for the cause of Christ, that's a, a Holy Spirit thing. That's a God thing. Because if this was just a philosophy, why would you hold on to it? Why would you allow yourself to, to lose and suffer so much if Jesus wasn't real? If this wasn't really God's message? He says that, that's the reason that the storms happen. Because through you and through your steadfastness, the glory of God is being displayed. Celebrate that, he says. He says, you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And while it's not fun, definitely not fun, it's not easy, no, and you're not going to enjoy it, celebrate it. Because you're sharing in what Christ went through. You're participating in it. It's something to be amazed and in awe of. That you are given the privilege to share in Christ's sufferings for his sake, for his kingdom's sake. That's a big deal. That's a really big deal. Paul is proud of this church, but he's more proud of the fact that they have been blessed by God, that it's confirmation of his sacrifice that God is at work amongst this church. And that brings us to verse 17. 
Now, remember I said that this is, Paul was preaching politics. Verse 17, we kind of, that's where we kind of get that first glimpse of what I mean by that. Um, and verse 17 is one of those things that can be taken really, really out of context, and a lot of people famously have. Um, but verse 17, or verse 16, excuse me, it talks about how the sin had come to its fullness of the Jews. Uh, in this translation, it calls them Judeans because the translator is trying to make a distinction between Jews and um, regional Judeans. Um, and it's kind of confusing and not really worth explaining, but he's talking about the Jewish people in Judea, okay? Uh, the emphasis there is that Paul is uh, still considers himself Jewish, so it's not fair to say all Jews fit into that category. He's right, but it kind of muddies the water, so we're not going to spend any time. Just when he says Judeans in these verses, he's, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the Jews in Judea who did not accept Christ, okay? Um, but in verse 16, let me just read it again, recap it, refresh you. He says... Um, those who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, this is actually verse 15, and who expelled us, they displease God, they oppose all people. They forbid us to speak to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. This has had the effect all along of completing the full total of their sins. And this is the important part. But the fury has come upon them for good. What is he talking about? What does he mean when it says that they displease God, that they oppose all people. What he is talking is, he, he's, he's, he's focusing on the, the aspect of the Jewish religion that emphasizes a warrior Messiah, a political Messiah, one who has come to make Israel the rulers of the world. Because that was kind of a prevalent thought. It wasn't universal amongst Jewish peoples back then, but it was a very prevalent thought that the Messiah, when he came, he would be a military leader and he would kick off the Romans and all these other empires that had constantly conquered the Israelites uh, and give them their freedom back and actually make them rulers of the world. And so there was, there was a bit of a racial tendency, racist tendency amongst Jewish people back then. And I say racist... It, it's not the same as modern-day racist, right? Racism today is very much a skin color kind of thing. Back then, it wasn't so much about skin color as what people group you are from. Skin color wasn't really a factor as much. Um, there are some recorded instances of it, but for the most part, it was, it was much more about people groups and less about the color of your skin because... The ancient Israelites had people of a bunch of different skin colors. I mean, just look at where they're located. Intermarriage amongst African peoples and Arab peoples and European peoples happened a lot. And so there definitely would have been a wide variety of skin colors amongst the Jewish peoples. That wasn't what they were racist against. They were racist against people who were not part of the Jewish people. That was what they, they, they looked down on them. And we see that over and over again in the Old and New Testaments. Um, and in outside extra biblical sources, we see that over and over again. They oppose all people because they were the chosen people and that eventually they would be the ruling people of the world. They were God's chosen people. And the result of that was they didn't listen. And so God would send messengers to get their attention and say, hey, that's not my plan. We call them prophets. And they would kill the prophets, usually very violently. And they sent Jesus to say, hey, that's not my plan. And they killed him very violently. And so it says that the fullness of their sin had come. And this is kind of like a throwback to Genesis 15, 16, where uh, it talks about how 
Abraham, his descendants would eventually inherit the, the, the land of, of Canaan, Israel, and, but it, their, their fullness of sin had not come. And those people we, we know from extra-biblical sources, archaeology and whatnot, these people practiced child sacrifice. These people practiced the uh, horrible, horrible things. Like if, if a stranger, a traveler came into town, like it was common practice that they would be given over to whoever wanted to have their way with them. Yeah, these are people who really, really, really sinned. And in God says in those cases, enough's enough. Now, our God isn't a God who immediately says, when you sin, you're done, right? I'm punishing you. Like, he's not like some giant sheriff in the sky, uh, you know, just keeping track of all the bad things we do and he's going to smite us. Like, that's he's not a giant smitey McSmite pants. Like, he's, he's, he's a God of, of repentance, of grace, of mercy. He wants to give us a chance to get it together, and he's extremely merciful and gracious when he doesn't have to be, but he does over and over and over again. But he says here that eventually God says, enough is enough. He said that with the ancient Canaanites and he gave their land to the people of Israel. And they conquered it violently. And he says here that the fury of God has come upon the Judeans, these ancient Jews. What does that mean? Well, here's something that, that might clear up a lot of confusion for you. We read parts of the New Testament, the Synoptic Gospels, which is a really fancy word for Matthew, Mark, Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those, Bible, those Gospels kind of share a common thread. They share common stories. They, they kind of follow the same path, whereas the Gospel of John is just... Kind of does his own thing, emphasizes different things. It was written much later, too. So it was written for a different reason than the first three. But my point is those three Gospels, they emphasize the destruction of the temple. And so Jesus says in Mark 13, 30, that the temple would be destroyed within this generation. Now, you might look at that verse and go, hold on a second. He didn't say the temple would be destroyed. He said these things would happen before this generation passes away. Okay, if you look at the context and you look at what he says, he's talking about what happened in 70 AD. I mean, things line up to, a, to the letter. The things he talked about when uh, the, the city of Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans and the temple was destroyed for good, it's still not been rebuilt. It lines up perfectly with what he says. And that's what Paul is talking about right here. He's talking about that the temple is going to be destroyed. He doesn't know that that's what's going to be. He knows that the people of Israel, God's wrath is going to come upon them. He, Paul didn't li live to see the temple destroyed. But this is what he's talking about here. He's talking about the fury of God coming upon the people of Israel that happened in 70 AD. That being said... Remember I told you a few minutes ago that people have famously taken this verse out of context. You know, they've, they've, they've made it say things that it doesn't say. This is not Paul saying that God is done with the Jewish people. Matter of fact, if you want to know exactly what Paul thinks about them, he went on a really, really long explanation of it in Romans, um, Romans 9 through 11. Sorry, I couldn't find it in my notes. In Romans chapter 9 through 11, he explains exactly what, what God's stance with the Jewish people is. All right, So this is not Paul saying that 
God's done with the Jewish people. Not at all. But what it explains in those chapters in Romans, it gives you, it'll fill you in a lot more. So if you're curious about that, go look that up and then study it. Um, but we don't have time to, uh, to get into that today. But that is what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the destruction of the temple that would happen just a few years after this letter was written. And that brings us to the last few verses, all right? So let me go ahead and read them. Starting in verse 17, it says, As for us, my dear family, we were snatched away from you for a short time, and in person, though not in heart. We longed eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. That's why we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but the Satan got in our way. Don't you see when our Lord Jesus is present once more, what is our hope, our joy, the crown of our boasting before him? It's you. You are our glory and our joy. So if you remember from previous weeks, Paul was in Thessalonica. He was doing his thing. He was leading by example. He was preaching in between running his tent shop, his tent business, tent making business. And eventually he gets enough attention that he gets run out of town. And he goes to Berea and he gets run out of town. And he goes to Athens and he gets run out of town. And so he goes to Corinth and that's where he is writing this letter. Every time he gets to the next city, he wants to go back to Thessalonica. He feels his time is cut short. He wants to go back. But he says, the Satan got in the way. What does that mean? You ever heard somebody say something like that in church? Like, you know, the devil, the devil's just getting on to me. The devil is hurting me. The devil's, you know, he's throwing all these, these obstacles in my way. It's a really common saying, especially amongst fundamental or... Um, well, really just fundamental, fundamentalist or cultural Christian people. Uh, and it, they're really saying that the devil has just caused an obstacle for him. But if you notice what Paul says here, he says, the Satan. Now, Satan is a word that means the accuser or the opposer. Uh, and it's, it comes from the Hebrew, the Satan. And it's, uh, I mean, it, it's literally what it means. It means the opposer, the accuser. And you don't call somebody by their proper name and use the prefix the, right? Like I don't, you don't call me the Rex or you don't, I don't call my son the Sawyer or my wife the Kim. Like I, I call them by their name. Paul isn't calling out the devil specifically here. He's not saying the devil himself specifically is getting in his way. He might be. Paul is definitely a big enough fish to get the devil's attention. But for us, Unless you are really like making strides and, and make causing damage uh, to this world in the name of Jesus, like you might not have the devil of your, in your way. But you know he has demons, he has minions, he has servants who who carry out that work. And spiritual warfare is very much real. Um, but sometimes it's ourselves we get in our own way, our own selfishness, our own sinfulness, or other people's selfishness and sinfulness get into our way. Spiritual warfare is all around us, and it takes a lot of different shapes. Um, and so it's not just that, that it's just the devil is, is in the way. It's, it can be a lot of different things, but they're all spiritual warfare, trying to distract you and keep you away from doing what God would have you do with your life. So he says that in the very last few verses, he says that, you know, in the end, what is, what is going to be my victory, my boasting point? He says, it's you. He says that you, um, what does he say exactly? I don't want to misquote. He says, um, he says that, that what is going to be the crown of our boasting. Now, that word crown there, there are two words for crown in ancient Greek. The first one is diadema. And diadema, kind of like diadem, it's a, it's a royal crown. Royalty wore that crown. 
But the ancients were really big into sports. Like they loved sports. There were several hundred years after this, they, they, there were literally riots over horse racing. Like people loved sports and it's kind of a universal thing. Like, you know, they, 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 they get attached to it. They find camaraderie and they find uh, value in themselves through their sports teams. I'm wearing a sports shirt right now. Um, but, it wouldn't have been uncommon for people to see a, a somebody get a victor's crown. They call it a Stephanos. A Stephanos was the crown that was given to somebody who won a race or a wrestling match or whatever ancient sport they did. Um, and so, you know, Paul uses the word Stephanos here. Like, what is your victory crown? Christ is the only one who wears the diadema, the royal crown. But we we get victor crowns because we've run our race. You know, Paul uses that, he expounds on this idea much further in other letters, but we run our race, and our race is about expanding the kingdom of God, of doing our part to grow Christ's kingdom, both spiritually and numerically, all around the world. And he says that when he looks at the Thessalonian church, that is his crown. And it's not that he's boasting in the work that he did, but that God has chosen to work through what he did. There's a big difference there. You know, every pastor on the planet, if they're worth their salt, they understand this very intimately. They know that what they do is not worth a, a, a anything if, if it's not being used by God. I mean, uh, we, you, you can be responsible for growing numbers. I mean, anybody can put together a, a service that is very attractive and has great music and great atmosphere, and you can get a bunch of people to show up to but that's not kingdom growth. Kingdom growth is spiritual growth. It's seeing people come to know Jesus, grow intimate with him, grow their faith. It's watching dads be dads, be good husbands, wives, be good wives, be good moms. It's watching people care other people, sharing the love of Christ with the people around them. It has nothing to do with church attendance. Although collecting together and worshiping together as a church family is extremely it's an extremely big part of it, but it's not the point. The point is the spiritual growth that happens, and that only happens through the working of God. And so Paul is saying that I'm going to boast that God used me, me, like chief of all sinners. I mean, he's setting the example for all the pastors out there that us lowly human people who aren't any better than the people that we shepherd, we're not any holier, we're not, we're not any more put together, we just... We study the Bible a lot more and we're equipped to shepherd people into a place where they can grow spiritually, where they can grow in their knowledge and faith of the Lord. And that God works through us, but it's not because we're special. And that's Paul's point here, that we aren't as pastors any better than the people we but God uses us and that's what we boast about. Like, look at how God has used me. He's used these hands, these broken hands who are capable of doing awful things. God used them. That's Paul's point here. And so to, to wrap this all up, you know, we face storms in our lives. And sometimes we don't know why. But that's not the point. You know, there's a lot of times in life we don't understand why we face the struggles that we do, why we have the opposition that we do, why the Satan gets in the way that he does. But the point is, is how we go through those. How we rely on God through them. How we grow spiritually through them. How we trust God to work through us in those storms. Don't be focused on the storm. Be focused on the God who is bigger 
than the storm this week. As always, I hope this was helpful, useful, and encouraging to you. Uh, make sure you watch the other videos if this is the first time you joined us. Otherwise, we'd love to see you on a Wednesday night at Tolesboro Christian Church. Until next time.